Oh, hello there, my dear. Before we begin today's conversation, I just wanted to remind you that Advent is here. Yes, spoiler alert, Jesus will be born again this year, whether we are ready or not, which is both hopeful and probably a little bit overwhelming. If you are like me, still scrambling to get the tree up or find a gift or figure out how to coexist with people that we love during Christmas dinner this year. So if you're looking for a way to make this season a little more, I don't know, set apart, give yourself a little more permission to have a merry-ish Christmas. We at the Everything Happens Project put together a free Advent devotional just for you. It is this gorgeous, massive, like, set of short readings and blessings and reflections on Christmas saints and little traditions that you can begin any day you like. So download it for free at katebowler.com advent. How do we reach for wisdom instead of self-help solutions? I guess that's been the question we've been circling around during this whole season of the podcast. When quick formulas are so much easier to hang on our refrigerators and repeat to ourselves in downward facing dog, how do we find the deeper, richer, more hopeful truths that can steady us in this life of uncertainty? Much to my embarrassment and dismay, my books keep getting categorized as self-help literature. I know, I know, I will just Trojan horse the crap out of this. Oh, were you looking for a six-step solution out of pain? Sorry to break it to you that you are human again today. But how do we live in this twisty, turny life without the easy answers? That's where my friend David Brooks comes in, whose books also get shelved in the self-help section, and who refuses to accept pat answers to life's more complex questions. David Brooks is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. He has written best-selling books like The Second Mountain, The Road to Character, and Bobos in Paradise. David is also a dear friend who agreed to carefully read my book and interrogate me about the matter during a lovely event hosted by Sixth and I, a center for arts, entertainment, ideas, and Jewish life in Washington, DC. So that's where today's conversation is from. And a special thank you to Jackie Leventhal for hosting us at your gorgeous synagogue for the event. I apologize in advance for David's absolutely horrific and unplanned pun that will leave me scarred for life and questioning whether or not he is actually my friend. Oh my gosh, we're going to love it. I should have started a podcast. It's popular. <laughs> this is so lovely. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Welcome, Kate, to Six and I. Before I really introduce Kate, I want to tell Kate about this room. Yeah. And so this, as you just heard, it was a synagogue for a long time, then it became an AME church. And then in 17 years ago, I guess, uh, it had its first uh, Jewish service again for 50 years. Wow. And that service was my son's bar mitzvah. Stop. (laughs) And so he he was the first person to lead this service in this place in half a century. And there were what we thought were three Torahs back in the ark right there. One, we were told, had been smuggled into Bergen-Belsen. One of them was rescued from Auschwitz. And one of them was written in a a town called Vengrove in in Poland, which was a a town of scribes. Uh, And so the story we were told, and I went back and did research in this little town, 
was that uh, the Nazis took it over. There were about 6,000 Jews there. 3,000 of them fled to the forest where they were shot. 3,000 were sent to the camps. 100 were kept to work and then eventually burned. Aww. And one made it to America and died a week before the bar mitzvah, actually. And so it was to have him read that scroll, a revived scroll in a revived sanctuary, as a young boy coming to manhood. Um, It was was a a statement of Jewish continuation. Gorgeous. Now the story of the scrolls turned a little squirrely later because the guy who sold them to the shul, uh, he was a little squirrely, so we're we're not... (laughs) It could have been from Walmart the week before, I don't really know. (laughs) <laughs> um, anyway, so that's the, a little short story about this place. David, I love your tender to... heart. Thank oh, you yes. for yeah. that. Yeah. So this is my good friend, Kate Bowler. Uh, we've known each other for a, a bit, uh, four or five years. Uh, and uh, the one thing I want to say, I know Kate is a scholar and doesn't care about such things, but I did what a crass journalist would do is I checked her out on Amazon about an hour ago. <laughs> And Kate's book is number six on Amazon. <laughs> She's like five higher than the very hungry caterpillar. Yeah, yeah. I have, I did not beat the sticker collection. It yeah. was like a Santa sticker collection. And you're you're yeah. forty higher than that damn love languages book. And if that jerk Bob Woodward hadn't written a book, you'd be number five. So um, I always feel like marketing is always so sad. You're like, you ready to be sad? <laughs> Come on out. And, Fog machine. Yeah. And, and the funniest thing, I showed Kate this backstage. <laughs> She's number one in the category, and this is a literal category on Amazon, of colorectal this. cancer. I don't She's want She's number one. I don't, I don't want that category. She's the John Grisham <laughs> of colorectal I, cancer. I just... <laughs> I'm like the most awkward person around, <laughs> yeah. around bodily issues. Okay. So I feel like just... Right. That the word rectal has haunted me so. <laughs> Let's actually, I, was, I didn't know where to start, but you've given me an opening. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was, that was terrible. And thank you. And thank you for coming. Talking about not realizing night. what you just said. Um, so one of the remarkable things about this book is... <laughs> it's, I, I cannot wait for this segue. <laughs> So you get this <laughs> diagnosis, and I would have hidden. I would have hidden from the reality. Mm. Like, I wouldn't have read up on it. I just would have hidden. Yeah. But you immersed. You did all the reading. You got all the other opinions. What was that like to dive in? Was there any instinct, I'm not going to dive into this? Or did your academic training mean you were going to dive into it? I think the, well, the thought felt impossible. It genuinely felt impossible. It felt like my... I could work, I could try to understand, I would do all of the, yeah, all the instinctual academic things. Let me just figure out the map of this whole reality. But then I would look at my son and it was just, it was just like a, like a, like a power surge and the power bar goes off. I just couldn't make myself imagine it. And I think that has helped me make the best and the worst decisions best because, um, I keep, my intellectual side just wants to keep trying. But emotionally, I can't uh, imagine living a day in which any amount of it would feel like, like I, had, I had done it right if this were the last one, I guess. And if, would this have been a very different experience if it happened before Zach was born? Yeah, I, I mean, I think when I think about like the math of my life, 
like what it has to add up to. On the other side of that equation, it just looks like it's like my, my life has to bear up the weight of a lot of love. And I can, I can, I don't know, I just like, I count my life by his age. Because I keep thinking, you know, and, and a lot of this is just either heresy or <laughs> <laughs> arrogance or, um, or just dumb, dumb love. But all I want to do is uh, like plead with people. Like, just tell me what the age is. Just tell me the age that, that everybody has to get to for, me to for me to feel like I've done enough and launched this kid and wrapped this up. You see. So his age, not your age. His age. Yeah, his age. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, husband, blah, blah, lovely, et cetera. Yeah. But, <laughs> but too good looking, you know? He'd yeah. be fine. He'd be fine. So, yeah. Do you have an answer to that question? <laughs> with, uh, with, What's uh, the right age, not how good looking Yeah, no, I did ask. I, you know, I work in this, um, I'm really hoping no one in my faculty is watching yeah. this right now, but in a geriatric, in a, just a joyfully geriatric uh, <laughs> faculty. And uh, so I would just wander up and down the hallways having existential problems. And I would, I would ask them, I'm like, have you, have you gotten there? Is this the age? Have you felt mm. it? And can I, could you just give me this clock? And, uh, and I remember a friend of mine just said, uh, you know, he was just about to retire and he'd had this incredible career. And, and then the more I listened to his life, the more I realized that everything else was just crumbling. And he was like, oh, Kate, but it comes undone. And then I thought, oh, I, I suppose there isn't kind of some kind of arrival gate. Yeah. Like I'm not going to stick this landing, Yeah, I suppose. So... The idea that you never arrive. I mean, I've watched a lot of people retire. This is a weird way to try to answer this. But <laughs> I've watched a lot of people retire. And I guess kind of as an intellectual, I was always trying to figure out what the, what the, what the crest feeling is like, whether people, I mean, because I know my field and I know my, I know what it would feel like if I had maybe even almost mastered a field. So I have like a, a tally for it. And then I just watched everyone on the day of their retire look around. And I, I've, I've had the privilege of being there at their retirement. I've been, had the privilege of being there at people's hospital beds. And I've seen them have to learn to have run the math backwards, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and usually at their retirement, they looked out and they felt robbed. Because everyone that would have, they would have imagined as the summation of their life wasn't necessarily even in that room. So I guess what I took from that is, uh, is that there will never be a, a feeling of summation, at least not in a single night. Yeah. Ex except this one, obviously, David. Which yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do that. Pretty much the climax. Gonna, all downhill. Yeah, that's right. I've <laughs> timed it to now. Um, yeah. My when I was a kid, my mentor was William F. Buckley, and I yeah. once asked him because he had really created the modern conservative movement. And I said, is there a moment where you just felt I've done way more than I ever expected, I can just relax? Yeah. He did not understand the question. There was no ending for, for I think, for most people. Yeah. Now, one question, this may be a hard question. I've only known you since the diagnosis. Yeah. So if you go back to pre-diagnosis. Yeah, I was great. I, you would have really liked really? me. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was much more cheerful. Um, Sorry, there was a better question. Yeah. You know, it was like, who was that person? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I was... I had had... Well, because 
academia is such an expensive profession. There's like two stops on that dumb train. Like you, you're like, I think it would be fun is your first dumb idea. <laughs> and then you get on a train. And then about 10 years later and like $200,000 later, you can get off that train. And right. <laughs> you would have met me right then. And I would have imagined that I would have the rest of my life to make that investment feel really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like I'd seen all of these, and it's, it's not romantic. My, it is romantic. It's so dumb. It's so romantic. I, every academic I know is a petty romantic. But I, my dad had always been um, an adjunct professor and my mom had been a music professor and I had seen her have this really shiny, lovely career and I'd seen my dad slog. It was like the tar pits of academia and he would have to drive around town like Winnipeg, Manitoba, teaching at sometimes upwards of seven colleges in a semester and then every three months he would get fired because they'd have to let go and then rehire him or he'd have to go on unemployment. And so I chose it knowing that it was either going to be the shiny, lovely version, or it was going to be the Tar Pits version. Right. But I was so in love with the idea that you can like, read a thousand books and then sort of live under the canopy of it that I thought, I'm going to have the whole rest of my life to enjoy being that person. And that person had like a lot of footnotes and was <laughs> good at parties. And... Uh, and then I think that's why maybe I felt so robbed and also that this vision I'd had, this more like wine and cheese, endless gargoyle sort of vision of my life, right. it evaporated because suddenly I was trying to make decisions based on trying to keep a job that I knew I wouldn't likely live long enough to keep. And so I had to try to decide if anything I was doing could have like a non-instrumentalist version, mm -hmm. like what good and beautiful things would we do anyway? Right. And it turns out, writing hysterically specific historical books is the thing I would do, <laughs> even if I only sell yeah. out the library copies. Yeah. Yeah. I like that frame, Endless Gargoyle. That, that, <laughs> that was my nickname in high school, by the way. Endless uh, Gargoyle. Uh. There's a, a great moment in the book um, where you, you've got the diagnosis, things are looking dire, should you spend time writing books? Yeah. And you had a conversation with a guy over margaritas that I thought was an incredibly gripping scene. If you could just describe oh. what Oh, well, I, um, I, w I was lucky enough to get this, uh, you get like a cohort of young scholars of American religion, even though all of us were probably early middle-aged, conservatively. Um, but we were like young and full of promise. And... Uh, and we were all going through this experience together of being junior and then trying to achieve some kind of permanent job anywhere. And, and then when it felt like everything was just going to be for nothing, I was in the hospital most of the day. Everyone else seemed like they had like, gotten the promotion or gone somewhere. And I, I wasn't trying to feel like robbed, but I felt oh, like I didn't know what any of it was technically for. And, um, and so my friends talked me into doing this absolutely um, specific lecture at uh, Regent College in, um, in Virginia Beach, Regent University. And, uh, 
and give some kind of free lecture, which we do mostly to comp the hotel and get a dinner together in some city. And we will do anything for like a, a plain, like a free dinner and, uh, and the ability to tell our university that we went somewhere for a reason. And uh, so I gave this lecture. I felt really kind of ridiculous because I was hooked up to a chemo pack and I felt like, is this a, is this a tragic comedy that I am living? And... Um, And they took me up for margaritas that night and they said, uh, you know, we were just doing that thing where you like dig into each other's brains and we went through every footnote and every, you know, every what are you doing next? And, um, and then finally they said, well, it's okay, what are you going to do with that lecture? And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like this whole thing has started to feel a little, a little ridiculous. And my friend TJ said, like, what is this? as if like everything was, all my choices had been splayed out in front of us. And he said, um, you know, I think the way you've been framing things as if all of your decisions were the result of, of either your ambition or some kind of work as hobby are, are incorrect. That like, I know that you want to spend every moment with your kid and with your family, but at the same time, like this, You know, whatever this is that we do, like even if the worst happens, your, your son can find you there. So it's just like, write the dumb book. And I think probably 300 people read that book when I finished it, and I was so happy. I spent most of my hospital days interviewing, like people would come into the hospital, like megachurch preachers' wives, and I would, I would interview them while getting infused. <laughs> Just, it was very awkward for them, but I really enjoyed it. And, um, and people really felt like they had to be extra vulnerable, which I really appreciate. Like, what, me? Oh, I suppose you could tell me that. Um, and then every night, so every morning I would write 500 words and every night I would send it to my dad and he would proofread it and send it back and he would declare it to be very good indeed. And, uh, <laughs> and he would say, um, I'll follow your career with interest, which is something <laughs> like he says instead of saying I love you, which makes me laugh so hard. And, uh, and then at the end I got to dedicate that book to him and I just said, um, for my dad who dusted me off and sent me up the mountain again after I fell all the way down. And it's just good to have those people who yeah. are like, wow. get we, up there, soldier. We have the same parents my parents were academics too, <laughs> except my parents don't like my books. So. Um. <laughs> I'd like to learn more about this too. <laughs> uh, so, so there are two kinds of wisdom. The one you think you're going to get as an academic by reading a lot of books. Yeah. And then the one you get experientially by going through what you've gone through. Yeah. Does it feel like two different kinds of wisdom? Like my, as someone who grew up in an academic home and now teaches at a university, I wouldn't say a lot of my colleagues have the kind of wisdom that I would value more <laughs> from, from, from life, living. Yeah. So does it feel like you've acquired a, a different kind of wisdom? Hmm. I think I've had it modeled at really crucial times, especially over the last couple of years because I work at a divinity school where everyone is sort of endlessly bleeding out emotionally for somebody else, which is <laughs> so nice, honestly, to be around. Um, but I have this lovely friend, um, Will, who's a professor and also like a bishop, just to make things fancy. Yeah. And, uh, and he has been there for so many weddings. But as, as my friend who's a pastor likes to say, like, anyone can do weddings. Shaq can do weddings, <laughs> you know? But like, who can be there 
who can be there when, it, when every word matters? And, and he uh, just has always been the one who volunteers to be there at 4 a.m., just with like putting a hand on my head to just bless me before I go into surgery or to, um, to struggle through the feeling. I think that, um, that if this hope, all this work, emotional, spiritual work, is for no reason, then wouldn't we feel, then isn't this a kind of poison? Like he's just wonderful at helping me have those kinds of problems. But um, he's very bossy and nosy and just show, like, he'll, I think he has his clerical honest, collar, honestly, in his little glove box, and he just, like, pops it in when he wants to violate visiting hours. He just, like, <laughs> heads in there. And, but when I was scared that I wouldn't get to do any of the rest of it, I'll never forget, right before I went into surgery, he just, like, waited at the edge right before the end when I'm always the most scared, like, right before they put the oxygen mask on and your brain is just kind of screaming. And he just kind of... He, he like paused at the gurney for one second and everybody just like lets a man with a clerical collar do whatever he wants, frankly. And, and then he just said, um, you know, he like blessed everybody and then he was like, and God, please keep this one alive because her best work is yet to come. Hmm. And I'm like, that is a big, that's a big hard hope. And I think uh, they've done it They've done a good job at combining intellectual and spiritual wisdom, but I think only because it was tested right. more yeah. than me. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about hope. Uh, like, what have you learned about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we for it? Is yeah. it a good idea? I mean, Is Barack Obama did that, but it's over now, right? Yeah. But now, <laughs> so you sustaining hope. Yeah. Keep hope alive. Right. And what is it? I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a horrible word when... <laughs> Because I thought it would mean, it, I thought it should mean the same thing as some kind of, I don't know, some kind of certainty, some kind of, I guess I had somewhere along the way imagined faith as a kind of blessed assurance, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and it wasn't feeling like that at all. It was just feeling like endless lily pads and nothing would necessarily bear up my weight. And so it took me a long time to even want to be around it because usually it, uh, it felt painful. Hmm. People who sort of hope at you, yeah. like they're making you bear the weight of all of their spiritual, emotional expectations, right. or they are just so sure that you're going to be fine because the idea that you aren't feels intolerable to them somehow. And hmm. I think it was the heaven people, really. It was the heaven people that were getting to me. It's going to be so great, you know, and yeah. <laughs> I just... I felt like they were trying to balance out this equation and that like it was supposed to somehow make leaving a three-year-old feel okay. And yeah. it all felt like a lie. So at that point, I think I had, I'd settled into the idea that, that life was going to take more courage than I realized, mm -hmm. but I didn't have like a good place f for hope if it didn't um, feel like it wasn't just another formula to make all of our spiritual math add up. But, um, yeah, but it turns out that uh, as a Christian, I, we're kind of sort of stuck with it, I guess. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> saddled with this horrible, wonderful story about love that we'll be wrapped into. But um, usually I need people to hope for me and with me. Yeah. 
because uh, certainty is, is like, I think, no longer wise. Hmm. Now, what about the, um, I taught, I'm teaching a class now, and yeah. I taught a session this morning on empathy. Yeah. Because those who can't do teach. Uh, and, uh, hey, you have a very empathetic face. I uh, want to tell you all my problems right now. Okay. I really do. Uh, and I quoted you that by coincidence. <laughs> and we were talking about what do you say to someone who's either grieving or, or ill. Yeah. And you have a great quote, I think from Everything Happens for a Reason, um, where you say you want people who will give you compliments that don't feel like eulogies <laughs> and that will remind you there's something fun to do today. Yeah. And so in the experience you had of people coming and going and saying the right thing and the wrong thing, uh, what, what, what are the right and wrong things to say in these circumstances? Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, it's a, there's, so many, there's a lot to choose from, David, uh, <laughs> now that I let my mind wander over these last few years. Um, I, guess, I guess there's like fun different categories. Like one is just the solutions people who have, of course, recently discovered essential oils. And, uh, <laughs> and we are happy for them. We are very happy for them. Um, and then there's a lot of teachers uh, ones who are hoping that I'll learn perspective or a lesson. Um, I think I have become more um, lovingly homicidal toward the mindset people, to be honest. The mindset people, Mindset yeah. is a whole thing, David. If you haven't heard about it, if you have the right mindset, right. Um, this won't be happening to you. I don't know what this <laughs> is, but it, it won't happen again. Uh, but the you know, obsessive, um, just be present... Mm-hmm. Um, make a gratitude list. Yeah. A lot of chiding you on not having locked your um, mental framework into into like a, a a life without desire somehow, or, or yeah. your only desire is for today. And uh, I don't, I I don't think that's I don't think that's possible. Yeah. So yeah, I. Uh, I have a lot of um, hopes for loving strangers. And um, <laughs> most of it is that they will give either real presence, not just presence, you know. But, um, <laughs> you want, I'm hoping for real presence. I'd accept gift card. I'd say, you know. <laughs> At the end, you have an appendix, um, which sounds medical now that I say it. Oh my gosh, um, <laughs> and do. there are some what things people say and the more complicated truth. And a lot of these were my favorites, but one is nothing is wasted. Yeah. And you say we lose every day, which is why we will never have enough endless love, friends, and carbs. <laughs> um, everyone is doing their best, is what people say. It's not true. The jury is, the jury is still out on that. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful yeah. summation. Because if you ever say, you know, like people say all the time, you know, this was, this was painful. I, this was unacceptable. This, this hurt too much. And everyone, oh, people are trying their best. Yeah. Really, Betsy? Everyone? <laughs> yeah. Everyone yeah. is equally trying their best right, <laughs> right now? That can't be proven. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do love those. Um, I love cliches. I just intellectually, I just love studying the history of cliches because it helps us figure out that there's usually like a little gem there and then the rest we're just kind of given the cultural yeah. baggage yeah. That, that, we're, uh, that we're saddled with. Yeah. Now, if I used my awesome power to make you president of a med school, <laughs> what would you do to change the curriculum the way doctors related to you throughout this process? Wonderful question. <laughs> I, love, I love this question. I'm going to be very specific. Um, 
because I, I've had the chance to interview a lot of doctors now um, on the Everything Happens podcast, and some of their training is, uh, I, it's, it's painful, um, sitting in a way that no one gets between you and the door so you can get out and make the, deliver the news in the way that you want it to be, um, using overwhelming medical language or um, speaking, I find frequently in the language of probabilities instead of the language of meaning. And I do understand that uh, legally that it is uh, less desirable for them to venture any kinds of assurances. But I guess I've usually been on the receiving end of a conversation in which I'm trying to basically solve word problems. Like Kate has a liver with 80% of it riddled with cancer. We can only cut out 55%. Less than 20% will kill Kate. And I'm just like, this, this is too many. I can just always just hear the, the endless yeah. Yeah. transactionalism of it. So I, um, I have loved doctors who say the hard thing and then just leave a moment because mm -hmm. you can't hear them anyway, right. especially if it's awful. Um, I have loved doctors who let me have my have my fears without um, making me feel embarrassed. I mean, I do feel you feel ridiculous crying, but I uh, I had this one really ridiculous situation where um, I remember feeling kind of embarrassed that I was the same age as my doctors, but I was no longer my own age. I was sort of just. Um, like roughly a human form in the shape of a hospital gown. And these three doctors came in. I realized they were all the kind of junior, like, go-getters. And, um, and they were all just talking and chatting and so into what they were doing. And I was just trying to say, um, like, hey, thanks so much for coming. So much puppet hands today, sorry. Um, <laughs> but like, hey, thanks for coming. Um, I actually have really sensitive skin, so if you wouldn't mind. And then at one, they would just... And I just saw just a layer of my skin that was now gone. And I looked up, and I, at first I was up, and I was just so mad. And apparently when I'm mad, I'm very funny. <laughs> and I was so happy, because out of my mouth was like, number yourselves off in terms of importance, one, two, three, go. And they just went like, one, two, three. And I was like, number one, obviously, you need to set a better precedent. Number three, <laughs> <laughs> number three, you need to be paying attention to your patient instead of sucking up to number one. And number two, I have no idea why you're here. But number two came back the next day and had to um, remove something from my stomach that I didn't understand was in there or could be removed in a regular hospital room. Wow. And wow. I remember he walks in and he was really embarrassed and I was a little chippy. And, um, <laughs> and he, I remember being like... Uh, you know, Ms. Bowler, I'm here to remove this drain. And I was like, you're going to... Oh, no, this is just a regular room. You can't do anything <laughs> exciting in this room. This is a boring room. Like, this room... <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, I think I would feel a lot better if we just tried this again. Long silence. Are you saying that I have to leave? And I was like, I'd really prefer if you just left and came back again. <laughs> so he left. He <laughs> there was a curtain. I remember he was like, knock, knock. Like on the other side of the curtain. He came in. He's, I was like, why are your hands like this? And he was like, I have to keep them sterile. I was like, I actually would really prefer if you pretend to be doing a magic trick. <laughs> and he gives me this face. And he's like, he shakes his head. I was like, 
so he left, he came back, and then he was like, he's like, I'm here to perform a magic trick. I'll be taking something out of your stomach. And I was like, great. So he he goes, I was like, he gave me the best description of pain I've ever heard. He was like, you're going to feel a deep pinch and then a hard pull. Great. I love perfect descriptions. So I closed my eyes and I felt this deep pinch and I felt this hard pull. And then when I opened my eyes, there was my blood all over uh. his white gown. And it looked like he was holding like 22 feet of tube, like an absolutely uh. implausible. And then he goes, ta-da. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we were friends to this day. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you had it bronzed, I take it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> wow, I'm almost passing out up here. So uh. I, so I want that guy. I just want so, that guy with yeah. all of them, yeah. <laughs> now, in the Christian tradition, suffering is redemptive. Yeah, but I, I'm doing it. I, I, went, <laughs> I, I went through a bad time about eight years ago. Yeah. And somebody gave me a book by Henry Nouwen. And one of the sentences in the book was, you have to stay in the pain long enough to see what it has to teach you. Mm. And I was like, screw that. Yeah, I want to get out of the pain. Terrible. But it seems somewhat true. In the, in the Stoic tradition, yeah. suffering is not redemptive. You let go. Stoics, man. <laughs> Can we even with the Stoics right now? Marcus Aurelius is going to help us all start a business, apparently. <laughs> I just... I get that desire is painful. I get that like a deep acceptance is good. Um, wait, sorry, what was the question? I was just mad about stories. I was asking you to choose one or the other. <laughs> but the Marcus Aurelius yeah, line. Yeah, sorry, I'm just very, very pissy about Stoics lately. Um, <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> That's so good. That's so funny. Um, yeah, it, uh, I guess that's, I mean, that is sort of the terrible, beautiful irony of like getting down to the marrow of things is, yeah. is, uh, it all matters more. It's more beautiful. It's more surreal. It's funnier. It's more painful. And uh, none of that is, um, so I think that is frequently where the meaning is. It's just, who is, you know, who is the lesson apparent to always just feels like something I want to hold really lightly. It's like I keep learning things, and I am grateful, but, but none of it is a formula that would add up to anything that feels right. um, remotely fair. Yeah. So you know, I have a, an, an acquaintance, Dan McAdams, who teaches at Northwestern, and he teaches story. How do people narrate their life stories? Yeah. And the first thing he had, he, he pays his subjects a couple hundred bucks to tell them his, their life story. And they all cry <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, they say, I can't take your money. This was the best afternoon I've had in years. Because no one has asked them about their life story. But one of the things he concluded from early research was that people tell redemption stories. Mm. I was living, something bad happened, I came back better. <sighs> and he did lectures around the world saying, people tell redemption stories. And the audience said... Americans tell redemption stories. Uh-huh. We don't tell redemption, so we tell other <laughs> stories. Um, but that, in some sense, your story is a, I mean, a redemption story. I mean, you've, 
you've, come, you've not come away empty-handed, as they say. Right, right. I guess that always feels very... Um, I've always found that to be like the, the most awkward part of like the, of this like translation process of trying to live in the richness of that, of that beauty and meaning and truth. But then when it comes to the summary of it, it always, it always is like a, like a quarter turn away from something that's true. It ends up like accidentally almost. That's good promising like a like a false peace or a false hope or like I feel it when I think about um I was just I was thinking of writing about the history of bucket lists and the feeling of enoughness and and how we instrumentalize everything and how we have become experiential capitalists and Mm -hmm. I thought it was like a pretty good argument etc etc uh but you know but when it's summarized it it can't just be um well, within the course of every day, you can just hug a child. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yeah. Enoughness. Right. I've never felt that. And yeah. I think part of the... Um, trying to understand the nature of our hungers and the fact that our love makes us starving to death sometimes. Mm-hmm. And like, so, so in trying to tell a story about trying to give up bucket lists, I don't mean then to say that like... W- there's ever a version where we get to feel full if we just add the right things on that list. So I always feel like I'm accidentally half lying yeah. when I'm, right. because all I'm trying to do is get out of the self-help section. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and that is like the dominant American genre. Yeah, which your academic career is about. <laughs> um, did God come and go? Did God come and go? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The um, bright, beautiful presence of overwhelming love that I automatically understood was God and not me. That was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, and then it went away. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I just I feel bits of it here and there, but I think that's why I'm so interested in trying to figure out that 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 step away from a crisis faith into a chronic faith mm-hmm. is like living here like this. That's kind of what I want to learn to do. Yeah. Okay, the book is No Cure for Being Human, and <laughs> yeah, the yeah, yeah. author so is Kate Bowler. <laughs> well, that's it. We've solved the problem of pain. Congratulations, everyone, everywhere. It will no longer be difficult to be a human. No, but I did just want to say before we go, what a joy it has been to be back with you this season. It has been an incredible privilege to be able to be together as we figure out how to live here like this, in a chronic pandemic, with chronic lives, with our chronic humanity. I also just wanted to say thank you for how much you've been a source of strength and support. Thanks to you, My book, No Cure for Being Human, was an instant New York Times bestseller. So I honestly can't imagine a kinder and more loving community to be a part of. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. While this is the last episode of this season, do not worry, we will be back in February. And in the meantime, if you're looking for additional resources, visit katebowler.com slash newsletter if you want to get a weekly note from me. We also have free discussion questions for No Cure for Being Human, 
available at katebowler.com if you're into book clubs or Sunday school classes or those kinds of things. And because all of you have been so enthusiastic about our blessings, we have some very exciting news. Along with the executive producer of this beloved podcast, her name is Jessica Ritchie, and she absolutely hates it when I talk about her, and I'm just going to do it right now and hope she doesn't edit it out. But we wrote a book of devotions, 40-ish short reflections and blessings that will offer us all a little space to be okay with being, well, this human. And so we called it Good Enough, which we thought was just very funny. Like, what would it be like if we had a good enough good enough faith, a good enough approach to this. And so good enough releases in February and you can pre-order a copy. Now go to katebowler.com slash good enough to learn more and order your copy. That's katebowler.com slash good enough. And as a tiny preview and because we just love to bless the crap out of each other before we go, here is a blessing from good enough. A blessing for you, dear one, as you continue this joyfully mediocre journey. Here goes. Blessed are you who realize there is simply not enough time, money, resources. Blessed are you who are tired of pretending that raw effort is the secret to perfection. Blessed are you who need a gentle reminder that Even now, even today, God is here, and somehow that is good enough. All right, darlings, but I can't sign off for the season without thanking the wonderful people who make this possible. They are all kind and smart and funny, which, as it turns out, is uh, a requirement to being my friend. First, to the Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education, their tireless support of our medium sad work and <laughs> thank you to jessica ritchie who has written here that she hates <laughs> hates 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 compliments so please don't do it oh that's so funny it's too bad jess i love you you're everything harriet putman who ensures that i am never late and who extends kindness and compassion and ministry at every level of this work gwen higginbotham for making all things beautiful aj walton who shares not only his joy, but enthusiasm for all things reality TV. Katie Mangum, who created her own little factory of theological hospitality. We will miss you. JJ Dickinson, our newly ordained teammate who never hesitates to jump in anywhere we need her. Keith Weston, who makes every episode sound gorgeous. Dave Odom and Catherine Smith, for your wisdom and friendship and endless problem solving. Dan Wells, Chris Howell, and Karen and Jerry Bowler, who make me smarter. Jeb and Sammy, who never balk at a new idea. Mary Jo Clancy, Carl Weisner, and Dana Otten, who solve all our problems and then some. And Edgardo Colonna Marique, my dean, who always knows what day it is, and apparently it's always a saint's birthday. And to you all, love you. Talk to you again soon. This has been Everything Happens, and I'm Kate Bowler again today. Until next season. And at that point, maybe I'll Transformer style change into someone new. See you then.